All right. Hello, everyone. Hope you're having a good Monday or whatever day it is when you're listening to this at a later time on Spotify or Apple. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited for this episode today because we're going to be talking to Carson Kavari, who is the director of Thrive Downtown in Vancouver, um, a, a an amazing psychedelic integration therapy clinic here. Um, I've I've been doing a lot of my counseling and therapy work there, and I've gotten to know Carson pretty well over the past few months, and I owe him a lot for opening the doors for me into this deep work of, of inner healing and of spiritual exploration. Um, the, these doors that I never really thought were, were even there, even a year ago. Um, and as I prioritized my inner life more and more, I started seeking psychedelic therapy. And then I contacted Carson um, and uh, long story short, um, I'm on this path of inner healing. Um, but today we're gonna to talk to Carson about how he started Thrive Downtown, um, what led him to psychedelics, um, what his clinical work is like. Um, and I'm sure that'll be very, very interesting for everyone uh, listening right now. And uh, even in, even inspiring um, because it's, it's, it, it takes a lot of work to start your own institution from the ground up. And what Carson has done is quite amazing. And uh, as I mentioned in my um, Substack piece um, from yesterday, about this podcast, um, Thrive Downtown, I think, is, is one of the few institutions that I seriously would say is doing uh, God's work with the amount of healing that they're giving to so many people, um, so many people that I've referred, um, family members, friends, colleagues, people who've read my writing, who are now going to Thrive Downtown, um, even people who aren't even based in Vancouver, who read my writing in the, in the States, who have reached out to Carson and are going to be getting some um, powerful therapy. Um, it, it's all a, a beautiful process, but uh, I'm glad to have Carson here. Carson, welcome. If you want to unmute your mic. Hey, Rav. Yeah, no, I appreciate not only the uh, really humbling intro, but just the instructions on how to un unmute my mic. So that's uh, a couple couple great things to get started at once <laughs> great how's your day going it's uh you know it's it's a it's a wonderful time just because the the clinic you mentioned we're just growing right now so i've just been kind of helping uh just kind of install some new things and, and support the team and yeah it's it's a really exciting time all the all the things you mentioned were we're just kind of helping our team to offer more of them to kind of outreach and help more people kind of access all the all the services uh, that you're that you're talking about. Amazing, and we'll maybe we'll talk about that later about how you're expanding the clinic and installing these new things. Yeah. Um, but why don't we go all the way to kind of step one in your journey? Why don't we maybe? I think a good place could be to start is to maybe roughly outline um, <laughs> your your childhood and your youth. Like, were there any specific issues that you were dealing with? that later kind of crystallized in your uh, path of inner healing, um, anything that really um, was bothering you or disturbing you that you ended up addressing through psychedelics. If there's one or two things, whether it's parents or school or anxiety, depression, or whatever it is, um, what, what was kind of your, your main um, issue or struggle that eventually led you to psychedelics? Yeah, well, you know, I, I will say anybody who's a healer uh, has known 
some kind of pain of, of loneliness or, or, or just some kind of turmoil. And, I, and I'm no exception. Um, and, you know, as, as I kind of think back, uh, earlier life experiences, uh, you know, as an, as an only child uh, with um, two just wonderful parents who I, I just love very much. Uh, yeah, just, just things that happen to people. My story is like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of young folks where the adults just had a lot of, a lot of stress in their life. And at one point when the, when the family kind of fractured, I, I found myself just trying to kind of make sense of, of the, the loneliness and the emptiness and kind of, you know, the adults being so kind of enmeshed in, in all their stress. Um, you know, it was a period of not, it was kind of a preliterate time before the word anxiety really wasn't anywhere. And when I was having a lot of panic attacks through divorce and, and, um, and kind of those anxious symptoms, uh, I remember my, my doctor at the time kind of thought it was an inner ear disorder and they were trying to put garlic in my ears and everything to cure it. It felt more like a 16th century, like Catholic intervention to exercise a demon than it was like a, a response to any kind of mental health. So, um, you know, just being young and trying to make sense of a lot of painful feelings created, it sort of planted a lot of seeds of pain that wouldn't make sense until quite a bit later. And like so many therapists, I went into a healing profession with an unconscious quest to heal a lot of things that hurt and not really realizing how much wanting to heal others had to do with wanting to take care of my own inner child and, and kind of give him a do-over and uh, somewhere along the way, I, I was when I was 15 years old, I, I had a it was a fateful Halloween where I took some magic mushrooms uh, with some friends. And, you know, it, it was just such a phenomenal experience looking at the Okanagan sunsets. Anyone who lives around there will, will know they look like an oil painting in the sky. And it was just one of the first experiences where I could feel the forces of the earth and and sort of the cosmic mystery reaching out to me and, and letting me know there's something bigger to listen to than, than just sort of all the anger and, and kind of like ruminating thought loops I had stuck inside. And, uh, you know, that was the first kind of hint that there's, yeah, there, there's something really behind the healing power of plants. And that uh, for me personally, it was going to become more necessary to really embrace sort of a, a spiritual path to to really anchor it all. Mm, okay. And um, how did you get into the therapy work? Um, was there a direct line between um, the psychedelic work you were doing and the therapy work? I'm curious how that gels together. If one kind of happened um, after the other, um, or did you get into therapy work and then do more psychedelic work um, afterwards? Yeah, you know, I, I used to think there was like a a separation, but there's really not. Um, I, you know, I've always been an artistic person. I, I was convinced I was going to go make films, but uh, all that changed when I was, uh, I was either, either late 16 or 17. I, you know, all that kind of turmoil I had inside, I hadn't really dealt with yet. Like many teens, I, I, I took a huge dose of, of mushrooms to try to kind of, I guess, escape it. And I took a seven gram dose of kind of powdered mushroom, which is just really um, an unwise move. You know, anybody listening, uh, please use respect and caution towards psychedelic plants. But the experience turned into what what's called an ego death, where I, there was just these well, first it became like you could call a hell experience where there was just this 
interminable cyclical full eye hallucinations of uh and and a lot of elements of sort of the the traditional catholic hell which is interesting so, since i wasn't raised religious but the the long and short of it was it, it was such a, a horrifying experience um that actually during it i i ran into the streets screaming and a, and a police officer came and tasered me two times uh it was just such an unbelievable level of of suffering and impossible fractaling consciousness and this sort of eternity that as you can imagine when it ended i was i had a lot of questions i was really uh became quite obsessed with what the nature of consciousness was um what what perception is what happens after death and it was really hard to just sort of pursue a career in filmmaking at that point so um i you know in my in a kind of a first year of of college i took a psychology class and i just fell in love with it right away um just kind of right from the beginning looking at the the sort of depth approaches of freud and jung the really kind of positive humanistic approaches of carl rogers and the sort of meditative transcendent approaches of the cognitive behavioral and mindfulness approaches i just loved it and so it became this straight line of get educated uh learn everything from the the statistics and research element to the clinical practice and all the while um psychedelics kind of took a back seat i i didn't really think about them as much i you know i had more of a distant relationship since uh you know the trip to sort of eternal hell you know as you can imagine it sort of put me off of the whole thing but uh as time went on and I, you know i i graduated from my clinical training um started uh, a practice uh i found my way back to psychedelics when i was at a a maps fundraiser in the, the sorry let, let me just pause you for a second yeah just please a couple, a couple a couple things so i'm sorry what age were you in when you had that horrifying psychedelic experience i want to say 17 okay uh and then you're in college and then you get a degree in psychology yeah i i my first undergrad degree was a concentration in clinical psychology and then my masters was in uh, counseling psychology mm okay and in that period of time you were saying psychedelics weren't really part of your life or were they more um used occasionally or sort of on a yearly basis or did you just um turn off from that space after that one horrifying experience well and so this is that's a great question and thanks for organizing my my kind of my my ramblings here but one one thing i want to say is during this period i would still take psychedelics occasionally but they were in a very unconscious kind of recreational sense and i i never want to tell people not to use psychedelics recreationally you can have beautiful experiences but i didn't know why i was taking them um there it wouldn't be until quite a bit later when i i formed a very conscious and intentional medicine relationship with them so at that point i would maybe take mushrooms um a couple times a year uh small amounts because i was so terrified of of uh kind of an unplanned ego death again uh, and you know there were there were some other psychedelics in there and you know there were some years of uh kind of as a musician being in the party circuit you know there there was there was a lot of kind of uh again really unconscious behavior and relationships to sort of um stuff i was taking and how did you recover from this 7 gram horrifying trip um did it leave, <laughs> did it did it leave a lasting impact on you psychically um and also i'm curious how you even um got back into mushrooms even at smaller doses because some people they get so scared after such a horrifying experience that they don't want to 
go back to that same drug or that same compound again for yeah. quite some time. Yeah, well, let my experience be a cautionary tale. Uh, the set, setting, preparation, knowing the right dose, being with the right people. I did everything wrong. And the question as to how I recovered, well, you know, I, I, for, for a good year after, I was so spooked. Like, if somebody even talked about space, I would start getting reactivations and, or what, you know, a lot of people would call flashbacks. And I didn't really have much of a game plan. Um, you know, at that age, I was too, uh, you know, I was a teenager. I didn't really have the wherewithal to engage in any sort of counseling. Psychedelic integration therapies weren't a thing at the time. So the recovery just kind of, I would say I put on the back burner. I actually became a lot more intellectual. I, 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 I became, I'd say more controlling uh, for a long time. And I wouldn't say the recovery really happened until about a decade later when I was in a deep, uh, you know, my practices of therapy, counseling, um, later on a more conscious return to medicines. Um, it created a sort of internal post-traumatic stress that lasted in some ways for over 10 years. So if ever there's a lesson on how to approach these things with, with respect, that's definitely it. Mm. And you know, sometimes even the most horrifying experiences can be very positive. They can teach us many things about ourselves or about the world. Was there a positive impact from that ego death experience? Because I've heard it both ways. Some people have the ego death and it scars them forever. But other people, they their their ego is less in control and they're able to be in more direct contact with reality and, and be able to connect with other people um, in a closer, more intimate way. Um, was there anything positive from that ego death experience that helped you in any other areas? You know, the simple answer is yes. And, you know, if what I, what I learned in, in later medicine work was that it was kind of an inevitable experience, like the things I saw on it, uh, it was always going to be something I was going to encounter at one point in my lifetime. Like there was no getting around that something was going to happen where I would be exposed to a deep ponderance of the truths of the cosmos. So in a way, it just felt like getting the initiation over with because it was it was going to happen one way or another. Um, so it's hard to say if it's good or bad so much as it is just absolutely part of my path to have direct contact with with uh, the nature of consciousness. Um, and so the simple answer is, yeah, it was a good thing. And then was there any specific intention of the psychedelics you did afterwards or, or like were you saying you were doing it occasionally during the time you were getting education so that there still wasn't much of an intention behind doing psychedelics when you were in college and by the time you'd graduated? No, the, the you know, it, I would say it was a quasi spiritual sort of sort of intention. Like I, I'd have this kind of half sense of, of connecting with something bigger, but again, the sort of Western institution and, and college, it's so intellectual. So rather than kind of practicing spirituality, a lot of our culture encourages you to practice intellectual control. So I'd use psychedelics kind of with a bit of a spiritual intention. Meanwhile, my left hand is growing my intellect. It was just such a push pull that it was you know, I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, the, the kind of intentionality behind them wouldn't come until I think, uh, I think when I was, uh, when I was in my later twenties. Mm. 
Yeah, so you were channeling your uh, your uh, religious impulse, as Jordan Peterson talks a lot about. You were mm. on the spirit. You were on the spiritual quest because, like you were saying, you didn't grow up religious, right? And uh, many people on the on the atheist side seem to think that you don't have to do much and you can just live a very intellectual life and follow certain ethics. But there's definitely this uh, need for self transcendence that we all have. I think whether we know it or not. Um, and for some people who don't have any kind of uh, religious upbringing or any affiliation with any spiritual practice, that need for it that they may not realize they have can manifest in, in many issues like depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, I, I think we all have this uh, impulse for connecting to something bigger than ourselves that can't be described in ordinary language. And then that's why we have meditation, yoga, Christianity, and psychedelics. Um, so would you think that that is something that you were trying to do, not having been raised in any religious environment, you were looking and you were kind of making your own religion out of these psychedelic trips you were doing? Yeah, well, I mean, I got goosebumps when he said it. So obviously the answer is yes. And <laughs> And, and and you're 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 right. Like the the you know the the genes for awe are programmed into us. You know the the um, the circuitry is just right there, waiting for for these kind of bigger experiences. And I, I I really had a hunger for it even prior to that. I wasn't raised religious, but um, my mother uh, has has quite a a, a spiritual kind of inclination built into her, and she shared the uh, you know the the book of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, when I was, uh, I want to say like 12 and, and just kind of picking it up, there, there was something that really sparked right away, um, which would become quite a love for Taoism and later Buddhism and, and um, the Vedic traditions. But uh, psychedelics, yeah, right from the very first one, the secrets of the cosmos were just starting to, to kind of speak. And I knew I was hungry for it. And I knew it was going to always become a, a, a really inevitable major point of my experience as as we see with a lot of people we, we work with at the clinic um even you know i don't want to get too off track but people who really identify with the sort of atheistic perspective one of the thing things uh people will observe with psychedelics is what happens when an atheist has a a spiritual religious experience they're, they're sort of sitting there with this huh what do i do with that kind of kind of look on their face yeah yeah i remember Excuse me. I remember reading an article in uh, Vice um, about the survey that was done a few years ago. Um, it must have been John, the Johns Hopkins teams. Um, I, and I think, I can't remember if it was DMT or if it was mushrooms. Um, I don't know if this rings a bell with you, but they surveyed um, atheists who had done their first psychedelic experience. And it was something like 60 to 70% of them afterwards um, didn't identify with the word atheist anymore. Um, not to mm. say they went, not to say they identified with any specific religion, but a majority of them um, found that word to be too limiting, too narrow. Um, yeah, and I and I th and I think even, um, yeah, that, that's a whole other conversation. But it it, um, it is interesting how the doors of perception can be opened through these experiences, and you can see something bigger than yourself. And I think many people not to say this for, for all people, I have many atheist friends, but um, there is a kind of arrogance, I think, that can come with, with, with even re religious people as well, but, but definitely using the word atheist and kind of closing yourself off to any kind of deep cosmic mystery or any kind of experience of the divine, you know, the Brahmin or any 
um, expression of God that is in our universe. I think closing yourself off to that um, is is actually unscientific in many ways. It's you're you're closing yourself off to so much that you don't know um, and putting so much weight on what you think you know through the very limited, narrow, and unfinished and ever evolving tools that we have with the scientific method, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more. And I I just I think a lot of um, people who identify as atheist also they've they're kind of created a straw man God they're arguing with, like, like this mm. very literal fundamental Christianity God. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, in that sense, I think there's a lot of people who are atheists, but I'm a believer that the line between um, kind of spirituality and atheism is a very artificial one. And I, I really think the, the experience can be very put very much put into scientific terms and, and kind of vice versa. And, and it's a, probably a whole other discussion, but um, whenever somebody says they're an atheist, I love to be really curious and well, tell me more. What, tell me about your atheism and just sort of see what they mean by that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, were there any, um, so yeah, I, I want to go deeper into your path into this work. Um, I guess one other important question is um, before we get into your deeper therapeutic interaction with psychedelics, were there any specific influences you had um, in your college years? Um, either psychological, intellectual, or religious. You mentioned getting into the Vedic uh, religion, um, Buddhism. Um, I, I know you're a fan of Alan Watts, um, and I know later on you were influenced by but Jordan Peterson as well. Um, mm. Were there any major influences that uh, you still have to this day that shaped your um, perspective on these issues? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I, I, I think, uh, like I mentioned, it was, I think it was a lot of the really direct kind of texts, um, more so than specific figures. Like, for instance, the very first thing that saved me was um, Tibetan Buddhism, in particular, differentiated from kind of Theravadan or Pure Land Buddhism, just because it had such a scientific approach to explaining consciousness in the Bardo realms. Um, Alan Watts was interestingly enough, the first person who tipped me off to the, the Vedic, uh, traditions. So, you know, great credit to him. He's, a, I think one of the best speakers who kind of intellectualizes the spiritual path. Um, and, you know, honestly, I'm just really grateful even, even for some of the very mainstream figures, because I, in the early days, even Deepak Chopra, like as commercial as he is, there is just so much, uh, kind of translation of, of the Indian tradition, which I'm really grateful for. And then, you know, in the more recent times, it was the modern um, translators of of, of kind of tradition, like Joseph Campbell as, as somebody who had a huge impact just because the ambition to look across every sort of myth system and, you know, breathe life into the archetypes, uh, Carl Jung, um, for similar reasons. And then Jordan Peterson was, I, I think, one of the best modern individuals to really look back to Nietzsche and Joseph Campbell, which interestingly, he doesn't mention his name a lot, but he, he was a big pillar of just really taking those great thinkers and synthesizing their, their work into something that can fascinate uh, and inspire people. Um, but lastly, in this long run on sentence, I want to mention a teacher of Vipassana style meditation named Shinzen Young was somebody who I, I studied for couple years um not a famous person but just like a very 
practical teacher of the meditative technique. That's somebody who I have great credit for um, his style of meditation that I learned uh, in 2009. I still practice today and has become sort of the bedrock of how I meditate. Mm. Um, and this meditation practice um, that I do want to talk about as well, was this uh, after graduation or during graduation? Um, and I guess this is a broader question too, if you, because, because meditation and psychedelics, I think are very symbiotic and it's, it's important to do both, I think. Um, so did you have a meditation practice in your youth or in during your college education? Or was that something you developed uh, later on? I started in 2008. And so I, I was, that was during my undergrad. It was just one, one summer. It's funny. I thought I was meditating for like five years, but I, mm. I didn't, I, 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 <laughs> I, I would read books about meditation and be like, yeah, this is great. I'm meditating. And then only later would I realize I was actually just kind of enforcing the intellectual systems I needed to to get to chill out with actually meditating. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a more common experience than many people think. Yeah. And I, and I, and I emphasize the word think there because it's so difficult to suspend the, the cerebral kind of rational uh, thinking faculties that we have. Uh, and so it's, and even sometimes it's, you're even kind of getting there and you're in that non-conceptual space. Um, and then you immediately start thinking like, Oh wow, I've got it now. Yeah. I'm meditating. And then you're just, you know, <laughs> not, not doing the right thing, but it, it's, it's very tricky. And that's something that I've, I've been spending a lot of time working on over the past uh, few years. Um, and I would highly encourage um, anyone who's looking to start. I think the, the waking up app is a, is a great place to start for meditation yeah. um, because of the, um, uh, I think those teachings are very universal, um, the way Sam Harris does it, um, and kind of explains the uh, the non-dual teachings from the start, um, and kind of emphasizes the gradualist approach as well of step by step of improving, but also this very um, uh, Advaita Vedanta kind of idea of the the thing that you're looking for is is already there. You already have that. The 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 thing that you were looking for or the, the five years of meditation that you were doing that you actually weren't doing that you were struggling with um, what you were looking for is already what you had, but you didn't realize it because you were too busy thinking or you were doing it the wrong way. Um, so I think, I think that that's a very interesting thing. And it's, it's, it's difficult to find a good meditation practice and a good teacher. Um, but, but I think, I think if you start with waking up uh, you're in good hands and you can maybe prevent uh, some of those uh, years or months you might spend thinking that you're meditating only to realize that you're uh, not actually doing meditation. Yeah. Well, well put, well put. I, I love that app too. And, you know, Sam Harris, I remember hearing him years ago, a lot of people uh, think they're meditating, but they're just kind of sitting there thinking and I can relate to that. Yeah. And I think that that's psychedelics can be very important, uh, can play a very important role in that for people who just don't know what it's like to not constantly think. And mm. try to interpret their reality um as sam himself has, has talked about this and i um i've had a bit a bit of this a bit of this experience but it is um the case that in the kind of society that we live in um where we're constantly thinking and interpreting things to just the way we're programmed as well um neurologically it's it's very difficult to um ever even con conceptualize an idea of non-thinking of just kind of being with reality rather than conceptualizing or thinking about it. And so psychedelics can be uh, 
uh, integral to understanding that you don't always have to um, project your own inner world onto the the actual physical world, and that you can have a much more direct, intimate, and non non judgmental interaction with the world. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that um, helped you, like psychedelics with meditation practice? Yeah, yeah. They, I would say, they helped. The, they really helped each other. But uh, I remember. Um, when was it? It was, uh, I want to say 2006 or seven. I was having a, a trip with, uh, LSA, which is, is, uh, it's the, it's like the main alkaloid in the Hawaiian baby Woodrow seed. Uh, some people call it natural LSD. Uh, I was having an experience with that and, and I, I remember meditating on it and just drifting in this, this effortless hours of, of just flawless meditation. And, and that's what, you know, the Michael Pollins would really say is that that kind of default mode network kind of turning off. And I really experienced that very viscerally and it it clued in at that point that if used right, yeah, they can give you such a direct experience of inseparable presence from, from being itself. And, and yeah, they've, they've been a help for that for sure. And, uh, in terms of your uh, religious interests that you kind of had with, with Buddhism and uh, with uh, the Vedic um, religion, did that come later on or was that there during the college years as well of those Eastern influences that you had? Well, so Buddhism was, was in my late teens. Like it was a triage, like it was a desperation to find something. I'm so glad my mom had the uh, mm. Tibetan book of living and dying kicking around because I, I needed something like that. Um, it, but you know, the kind of return to, to Taoism and, uh, to Vedanta, they were, they, they showed up during college, but I, I, I will tell you, I remember one time in my undergrad, I just sat there writing, where did God go? Where did God go? Where did God go? <laughs> because, because I was just so flooded with like the demands of kind of the left brain, college and everything it's like the spirituality really waned for a long time so i always say whenever whenever i get uh, peace from the demands of western life if i'm camping or or backpacking or something all those sort of spiritual experiences just flood back in like all it takes it's sort of like you said it's just in the presence you know you are that like it, it all very much appears so um you know to answer your question during college i was very much an intellectual study of religion and then uh, whenever there's peace and presence, it's the direct practice. And I've found the um, traditions, including um, mystic Christianity, uh, they really just, they all lead to the same place. They're, they're beautiful myth systems that are helping us become aware to what we really are. The mature truth of our souls and what spirit is that goes beyond these sort of personas that we wear uh, to have careers, but mistake for our true identity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I remember you're just reminding me. I was reading Alan Watts. Um, which book was I reading? Um, oh, the, the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. Um, and he talks about how even the word person of us all being individual people, um, the, the root word for person is like persona, which is the Greek word um, in, in, the, in the ancient Greek context that was used for describing people who were actually participating in plays and had various masks on and we're acting out. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting how we, um, people who don't have any kind of religious 
practice or any affiliation or any psychedelic work, they, they can very much feel isolated and atomized and separate from the world and kind of having their own individual ego um, without realizing that they're that they're just so identified with this mask that they're putting on. They're unable to really tap into um, not, not only the the deeper connections to be found within the world, but within the within their own selves. Um, but uh, let, let's go back to um, you graduating <laughs> from college and then doing your master's degree. Um, and then after that, you said you went right into therapy work. Did you become um, a therapist um, at a at some clinic in Vancouver? Yeah, I became one. I became became one right away in 2014. You know, I'd had such an incredible mentor. Actually, mentors really, uh, in particular Marv Westwood, uh, still a good friend. Um, I, I felt so prepared and to just start a business right away. And I had a, had a I still have a great friend, Dace. Uh, Dace Mars is my uh, good friend. We we started a clinic right away in 2014, and um, because my specialty was working with military veterans, um, of which you know 80 percent of them were male, just because of the sort of demographics of the the armed forces. I had such a strong specialty in working with men, and men in counseling, at least then, were such an underserved population because the marketing was so often kind of in this. Um, sort of nurturing kind of coddling style of safety. Uh, I'd worked with guys who had um, had to physically hurt themselves to go to the hospital because they get help because they, they were so scared to access the kind of, um, I want to say often just sort of feminized style of presentation a lot of the clinics had. So we were opening one to help, help a lot of the high stress service, service people, um, often men to actually go to counseling instead of just drinking themselves to death or, or going to, Get going to jail. So um, we started this clinic kind of with a, a men's issue focus, which uh, really changed over the years because Dace and I changed a lot over the years. But that was our start. We we started the clinic right away. And was was um, psychedelics part of the original plan of this clinic? And and did you call the clinic Thrive Downtown, or did it morph into psychedelic integration therapy later? Yeah, no, psychedelics uh, couldn't have been further from the plan at that point. I, I had really distanced myself from them. Not just not, they just weren't, you know, I just wasn't thinking about them a lot. Um, you know, I was on a hiatus. And so we we, we were called Thrive Consulting because, again, we were trying to sort of, we were trying to appeal to a lot of men who didn't want to go to like, you know, the, you know, the, the Safety Brook, you know, protection center or whatever, like a lot of places were, were sort of named. So we were Thrive Consulting. I had this like brushed seal sort of appeal. And then as the years went on, um, just so many uh, different identifying people really wanted to reach out. A lot of women wanted to work with us. And we thought, okay, what are we doing? Like, are we alienating more than half the market here? So we opened up, we rebranded as Thrive Downtown Counseling Center, which is just a very literal and descriptive name because that's exactly what we we were and are. And, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to also talk about what happened where, where psychedelics got involved, if that's the question. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to sort of go step by step in your own journey with psychedelics, mm. too, sort of at the same time. So there's your clinical practice and your own journey. And I'm curious how those two interact. Um, so you, you start this clinic and was, which year was that again? It was 2014, you said? 2014, yeah, is when Thrive first started. Okay. 
Um, and then how many years did you run it before rebranding? When did we become Thrive Downtown? I, I want to say around 2017-ish, I think is when, when um, I think it, it just kind of started becoming sort of just Thrive. And then I think it, the th- kind of Thrive Downtown branding might have kicked in around 2016, 2017. Mm. Okay. Um, and how and how were you doing then, broadly speaking? Because you, you were saying how you sort of accessed your inner child later in life, how you... Um, I think you said you um, processed some of these things in your childhood a decade later. Um, so at, at that point, um, I'm curious because you also said that you moved away from psychedelics. So was there any specific experience with like mushrooms or ayahuasca or anything that came into the play um, that tremendously helped you in your journey and then kind of uh, bleed it into your or bled into your clinical work as well? Yeah. Well, so, you know, in, in 2011, I really just started traditional therapy and just, man, I had, I had some great therapists. I, I did awesome work for, for five years, a lot of healing. Um, I had to go through a phase of, you know, so much anger at my, at my, my poor mom and dad. And I'm just like, ah, how, how could you? Uh, and, and that's fair because a lot of people want to forgive, you know, the things that went wrong. And one of the natural steps is to be, to grieve and be angry and so I, I, I kind of did that for a long time. I'm glad I have patient parents who who did their best to understand it. And um, we have great relationships now. But uh, it was 2016 when I was at a, um, a fundraiser for MAPS because I have friends who are part of the, the that initiative where Dr. Gaber Mate was at the party. And I, I really, you know, for those who don't know, he, he's just such a prominent physician and just an incredible just figure of, of working with trauma with his um, compassionate inquiry and, and, you know, a lot of work with psychedelic medicines, but he approached me at the party and this, in all his like intensity and strangeness, uh, we talked about cluster headache, a condition I had, and he just urged me to try ayahuasca. And I was just so touched by the exchange. It wasn't long after I had a plane ticket booked with a couple of close friends to go to Ecuador and Gabor Mate recommended you do ayahuasca. He was just, he grabbed my shoulder and he, he just kind of spoke how, you know, the headaches, he just said, there's trauma here. And he, he, you know, I, I and you know, I want to, I want to use a, a bit of a disclaimer there. I don't want to paint. Um, I really want to use caution not to paint Dr. Mate as somebody who tells people to, to take drugs. Okay. He, yeah. I really, there was a, 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 a just, the nuance of our exchange went that way. Yeah. I highly doubt he has ever told people <laughs> they should take. I just want to make that clear because yeah. if, if somebody said I told somebody to take something, I'd kind of, um, so, but with, with that said, yeah, he was the, he was the catalyst for me to, to go, mm. you know, embark on I a am- conscious relationship as, you know, with intention behind it. Mm. And maybe let's um, just, just pinpoint the, the, the headaches you were having. Um, so you you were having like what was it chronic was it going on for a few years and what were the headaches like? Right. Well, cluster headache is is rough. Like, it's one of the most pain. Women who get it will say the pain is larger than their their childbirth. It, it's a bad news condition, and and I would get it every September because they, they tend to be episodic and seasonal. I, I would get them every September. Uh, I'd had them for. a for a, a good decade over a decade by that point. And when they'd start in September, it was sort of a write-off, you know, if, if you get one, 
I'd have to cancel in mid session because the pain is just, you know, unbearable. Like I had a, a girlfriend who just, she'd have to leave the room because she just couldn't watch me like just pacing in the pain. Um, wow. But, you know, to, to the credit, I have now, I think six years of complete remission from them. And it's, it is specifically from mushroom use. There's ways science hasn't caught up with, but you can actually cure cluster headaches. So after over a decade of suffering, I have cured them by just taking a calculated dose of mushrooms every August, uh, just before the cycle starts. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and did you have any other chronic uh, physical pain or any other, uh, symptoms before you did this ayahuasca retreat? Well, I had a chronic emotional symptoms and, uh, really in my attachment patterns of dating, a terrible mm. fear of abandonment, which again was just like, a, you know, a lot of people will experience abandonment when, when, when they've, you know, felt a certain sort of safety in a family. And then if the family falls apart, kids don't know how to process it as an adult. They, they just, it triggers that abandoned sort of circuitry where, where there's, you know, a, uh, a preoccupied attachment, like a, a sort of clinginess occurs in relationships of like, you know, being afraid to get close to somebody and then a terror, they'll go away. So I dealt with that for such a long while and felt it really sabotage relationships. So that was what I brought down to Ecuador um, in, in our faith of using our Spanish to, to kind of communicate through the, the communities until we found a, a shaman that we, we, we felt you know, a good connection mm. with. I, I brought that mm. intention there. I wanted to work on abandonment. Mm. And did you still have your uh, anxiety attacks at that point or any level of uh, chronic anxiety from childhood? Well, yeah, chronic anxiety, definitely. You know, the panic attacks were really pronounced when I was 10 and 11, but uh, it just became sort of a hum, <laughs> a background hum of, mm. of uh, you know, like I at that divorce, I started biting my nails and then just like, you could just see this kind of, humming anxiety that really uh stuck with me and yeah definitely to to that point too for sure mm. and when you say it was in the it became a background hum was it did you mean the sense of you were not that you had overcome it or, or um actually dealt with it but that it had just been there sort of unaddressed and that it was sort of lurking in your your unconscious mind and you um, only sort of like later realized that it was there that you had been neglecting that part of yourself. I knew it was, I, I knew it was there. I, I just, and you know, I'd been addressing it in therapy and, and kind of working with it and reducing it. Um, it was, but you know, I, I, it was just clear. I, I had, you know, anxiety for, for sure. And also, I, I also want to clarify, I'm not being so brash as to just say, you know, that's because, the, you know, the, um, because there was, you know, stress in the family, like there, there's a big genetic component. There's so much anxiety on, on both my mom's and dad's side. So the cards were, you know, pretty dealt mm. that I was going to be sort of a high arousal sort of person. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's go to the ayahuasca retreat now. So what, what year is this? Mm. This is 2016. Okay. And so this is, this is before obviously you, started doing psychedelic integration therapy at Thrive, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, to, yeah. to that point, okay. psychedelics had been totally separate from the work. I'd had a, albeit m more distant one over the years, but a consistent one since, since I was 15 of just, um, I'd experimented with so many compounds by that point. But this was the first time going with just like a pointed, very clear mm -hmm. healing agenda in, in Ecuador. 
Well, yeah. Well, maybe before we talk about that, was there anything um, noteworthy um, of that time of experimentation with, with any drugs like MDMA or mescaline or LSD, anything that was, that you look back <laughs> as being significant in shaping your, um, your psyche, the way you looked at things or your clinical practice in any way? Yeah, de- definitely. I just, I wouldn't even know where to start. I feel earlier in the interview, I, I, I might've worded it that, uh, there was like not a lot of experimentation. I don't know why probably sending out mixed messages, but there was some incredible experiences. Like the first mm-hmm. times with MDMA, we instinctively, uh, as these kind of troubled young men, we instinctively just kind of started doing therapy on each other. We would, we'd, we'd all, I think we were all working on shame. We were all just talking about the things we kind of didn't like about ourselves. And there's just this huge energy of just like, I can't believe you feel that way. I actually really admire this about you. So MDMA was a, a really strong one in, in early healing. Um, LSD was, you know, such a transcendent experience where it was, you know, my ex- experiences with it were were supporting what I'd read in the Upanishads and, and just sort of religious texts that were just showing ultimately the cosmos are a conglomeration of both everything and nothing happening at the same time with sort of illusory transient experience of ego self occurring in between. And LSD was certainly saying, yeah, 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 that tracks. That's what's happening. And there's just a lot of peak experiences, whether that be emotional or personal, were all programming into me in ways that were going to absolutely affect how I was going to operate as a therapist and later as a therapist with a psychedelic integration specialty. Mm. And did this take conscious integration as well after your MDMA and LSD experiences, or was it more um, just uh, indirect or kind of unconscious? Yeah, it, it, I'll, I'll say it, it could have used a lot more integration. Um, it would integrate in that I'd journal and I'd meditate, but there was still, I didn't, I wasn't aware that I was like in a relationship with these as medicines at that point. I was still just thinking like, yeah, you know, take some drugs. And I, I just, I didn't realize how much I was shortchanging myself by kind of approaching it like that. Mm. But I mean, journaling, meditating, like for, for, for people um, who maybe even can't afford psychedelic integration therapy or can't um, afford a counselor uh, or, or, or can't afford um, a high quality counselor who knows psychedelics. I mean, isn't that still um, like, can't that be sufficient for many people of just journaling and meditating and reflecting on their experiences? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it can, it can be. And, and I just, I'm just saying I don't I didn't even do enough of that you know there there wasn't yeah. enough of a consistency but I will you don't you know you don't need a, a you don't need to spend money on a counselor to integrate you need to dedicate quiet time you need to make sure you don't just go back to work all week after a trip you need to make sure you can go camping go out and just sit in silence in nature that that that's the integration it's just a dedicated practice to have a relationship with yourself and with nature mm. Mm-hmm. Had you done DMT um, before this ayahuasca retreat? No, no, that was, I hadn't. So the ayahuasca was the first time um, okay. DMT, I believe, was in, ever in my system. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about that then, the, the ayahuasca retreat. Um, any profound realizations that came from that? Any, any transformative insights that 
um, change your uh, clinical practice or your relationship to yourself and connecting with other people? Yeah, it was. Hey, Rabbi, you there? Hey, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, just making sure to your question. Um, yeah. And, and I always, I always give a bit of a disclaimer cause I had a truly profound experience. Sometimes people hear these and then they, they go to, you know, um, pursue work or ayahuasca and they think it's going to be just like this and maybe it will, but you know, chances are it won't. It, they, it's really hard to predict what a trip will be like. But in my case, we'd, we'd really, you know, we'd found a shaman just through communicating through an entirely Spanish speaking town. So there was a huge amount of trust as Ramon drew, drove us out into the jungle and, and, you know, in the setting we were in a, a, just a covered area in the jungle with no walls or anything. So we were truly in the elements and what a, it was, it was perhaps the most beautiful ceremony I've, I've ever been a part of. Um, opened with uh, with tobacco, and then we drank the medicine. And I recall as it started, there was sort of these ghostly figures out in the in the foliage, and and I thought, oh, that's interesting. But then they became more distinct, and then one of them approached me and and walked in, and and you know my thoughts were, oh wow, this is quite a hallucination I'm having. But this really voluptuous sort of insectoid woman um float <laughs> floated over me and and i thought this is this is a really direct illusion but then she put her hands on, on me and i i felt the physical imprint of these fingers and i my body was just like i don't i don't i'm not i'm not seeing this as a hallucination i, I it it was a visitation of which i'd only had in lucid dreams the occasional sense of a very distinct being showing up and when she put her hand on me, um, the image was of my infant self, like my, my eyes still closed. And it, it showed images of, of the struggles and the kind of grief and pain of my mom and dad at the time. And it flashed back to the baby. And she just said, is this baby responsible for their pain? Is this baby, is it this baby's fault that the adults are suffering? And it was wow. sending this message of, are you responsible for other people's feelings? Are you, mm. is it your job to, to cure people? Who are you trying to cure when you do counseling work? Is it yourself? Is it this baby? And I, I was just in tears by that point. And she just directly said, you're not responsible. And uh, it was, it was the most literal, <laughs> like, you know, psychedelics had always been very symbolic and metaphorical. This was just a direct, literal message answering my intention. And you know, over the course wow. of the, the couple hours, there were seven more vignettes uh, where different messages occurred. And it was it was just such a remarkable event. And afterwards, I I was just so humbled. Um, I, you know, I'd been publishing research in, in journals to that point in the very like a very mechanical sort of academic style of knowledge. But after this, I, I just was, I, I, it wasn't, I couldn't be as rigid of a sort of scientific person because something completely uh, mystical had happened. And I'd, I'd always very much believed in these sort of things, but to experience that, I, I returned back to Canada. Uh, number one, 
my attachment pattern in dating was never the same after. I always used to attract the same sort of type of um, woman who was very kind of chaotic and dramatic and and the, the sort of women I, I dated after, there, there was just like a, a very straightforward sort of goodness about them. Like the people I was attracted to and attracted changed that preoccupied fear of abandonment. I never have experienced again in, in that sort of same way. And my sense of how to practice was so humbled. I, I was like, we need to start figuring out like a bigger lens of how to heal humans than, than just sort of how we've been taught. Cause there's things we don't understand. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Um, so how did, um, or actually before we go into, um, how this ayahuasca retreat, um, led to any changes in your clinical practice, is there, is there any way you, <clears throat> excuse me, is there any way you could like look back on, um, the, this many years of searching and seeking psychedelics, Buddhism, doing your college education, um, doing therapy work, becoming a therapist yourself, um, and still having this underlying anxiety, fear of abandonment, um, your parents' emotions weighing down on you. Um, can you kind of look back and think of a way to fast track this healing process that took so long for you? Is there anything you could have done, maybe more focused psychedelic sessions, uh, better integration? Like, is there um anything you could have done to have a better focus so that it wouldn't have taken sort of this long to um understand your your inner child and how it was affecting your relationships with other people no and no and the reason no and everybody needs to hear this the medicine is only half the counseling and the psychedelics the other half of the medicine is the suffering and had I not saturated in a certain type of pain and had experiences of escape. And there were years of, of using drugs and alcohol to try to numb pain. Had I not gone through that, there's, there would have been nothing to push against. There would have been no struggle and suffering that activated the deeper parts of my DNA and my soul's very reason for being. I wouldn't have figured out how to navigate anxiety. I wouldn't have learned firsthand compassion for people's suffering and struggle and i wouldn't have become bigger and stronger than my demons so the idea of fast tracking healing um is it's a great idea in theory but i want everybody listening to learn that healing isn't about speeding up the process of pain it's about loving into your your shadows and finding the lesson in them and learning that alchemy is the process of turning suffering into your greatest gifts. So there was no way to, to fast track that. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I, I like what you're saying. Um, and of course there, there's value in suffering, right. Of going through that pain. Um, but, but I guess the, what I was getting at is that there are many people that I know that I see who, sort of banging against a wall and they're stuck mm. and there are, of, of course there are ways of, um, of, of being kind of stagnant in your healing process. There's certain things that you could do. So, I mean, of course, you, you know, you can look back at anything, any failure, any prolonged process and find ways that could have been more efficient or things you could have done to have uh, facilitated the healing process in a more, um, 
I, I guess, quick, but even more transformative kind of way. Mm. So I mean, so I mean, there, there, of course, are some things um, in, in your experience as well that you, you look at and you think, maybe I could have done this better. Maybe instead oh, of focusing, maybe instead of focusing so much on education, I could have maybe focused more on this or maybe more meditation or more, like I was saying, maybe more psychedelic work. And we already alluded to how you could have integrated those things better. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. but I feel like it is important for somebody like you who, um, you know, we've titled this episode of institutionalizing psychedelic therapy. Um, and, you know, now I'm sort of in the midst of that um, and sort of doing kind of what you've laid the ground for, which I'm of course very grateful for, by the way. Um, but, but people like yourself, people like Sam Harris, people, um, um, who've, who've done a lot of experimental work with psychedelics when psychedelics weren't available in this therapeutic context, there are of course many lessons you've learned, um, from that, I assume. And you, um, through all of this experimentation that you did, um, do you have any insights for how to be more efficient or focused in the healing process, uh, maybe in your specific context, but kind of yeah. broadly as well yeah yeah okay no I, I i see the i see the question there what i what i would say to that is you know i i i, I speak with a lot of people who kind of want to do two things at once like they want to maintain a really fast-paced high level of demand and sort of higher healing as like a service that can work in the background and i i for myself in the past and for others in the present it, it's just a recognizing there needs to be some level of giving up and letting go and sacrificing what isn't working. So um, for folks who are in incredibly high stress burnout situations, what psychedelics are often just going to say is there need to be actual distinct lifestyle changes. So if people are looking for change uh, in a quicker way, I encourage people to really reflect on what can be let go of, what feels impossible to let go of, but may really need to change, whether it's a toxic relationship with a human or with a, a job. If, um, if either the desire for well-being or just the sickness of like just tolerating something that's just unbearable, if either of those things reaches a high enough point, change is going to happen. And if somebody wants that to kind of happen quicker, it's just a matter of how many hours a week are dedicated to healing or is it just kind of put in on the side of the desk? If it's on the side of the desk, change isn't going to happen very quickly. Mm. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And also thinking about your journey, I mean, you did a lot of psychedelics before the ayahuasca trip that you did. And you said you, you still had the, the deep fear of abandonment and all of this anxiety um, and then the, the cluster headaches as well. Um, so, so clearly you know, all of this psychedelic work, would you say, um, not, not that, if, of course, not that it wasn't um, effective in many ways, but um, it still didn't heal the underlying issues that you had. It took the ayahuasca trip um, for you, right? And I, and I wonder, was there a kind of gradual, was this a gradual journey? Um, or, 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 may, or maybe is it the case that, you know, doing the ayahuasca earlier at some point, could have then um, led to these these insights that you only had later, or if there were other ways where you um, could have addressed this underlying anxiety and this uh, deep emotional baggage from your parents that you had, um, 
because because the other thing I'm thinking of also is that just with all of this baggage that you were carrying, um, what, what one would think that after all the psychedelic work that you would have um, addressed that in a significant way and have, would have overcome it, but it but it took that one ayahuasca journey for that to really yeah. happen, right? Yeah, I, I will say the way I, the way I was using psychedelics, it wasn't gonna heal attachment trauma. There, there, I never even asked the plants, "Can you heal this?" Like it, there was just wasn't any intention pointed at it. Mm, and okay. you, you know, setting that up is the difference between seeing some cool visuals on the beach versus like having you know um, somatic pain of of abandonment come up and work out of the body. And it was like as soon as I actually met with the plants and asked for it, I got it. And now. I, you know, I sit with a lighter dose of, of ayahuasca um, several times a year, a smaller amount, and it's very literally just answers what I ask for. So it, it's just kind of a matter of cultivating the relationship. So you, you say like, well, could it have happened earlier? Yeah, I mean, it could have, but it's just, that's such a, a what if question, because if I wasn't ready to ask for it, you know, it, it never was going to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but people who are struggling right now, who are doing this healing process, I guess, um, like you would encourage them to have, to set that right intention, right? If you were yeah. to even go back in your own journey too, like if you had set more of an intention um, with these specific uh, medicines, then you could have gotten more out of it. So that's, that, that's just a universal lesson, right? Yeah. To go into it with, with the intention. Um, although still many people I know who don't have an intention, who still learn a lot and you yourself included, right? You, you yeah, it's true too. Yeah, um, and I, and I wonder how big of a line that is of you know going into a trip with a clear intention versus not. Um, I mean, with my MDMA trips, I didn't really have an intention, um, or, or no, mm. I did have a very clear intention, but it didn't end up really mattering because what came up was totally different, but was much more necessary and needed. And then we've talked a little bit about that before um, privately, but. Um, what what comes up kind of just comes up, um, and I, and I don't know. I, I guess I don't have enough experience with this, but but in my case, it was just um, things that had to come up did come up, and it didn't really matter uh, what my intention was going into it. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, cho- intention setting and choosing is an art in itself. Um, at people's intentions at first tend to be fairly like rational or and cerebral, and then you start to meditate or take psychedelics and you start to notice the intention choosing you uh, or your emotions and relationships like something very clear starts to float up and then from there you start to shape your intentions based on what that is and you know they they start to come from a really informed and clear place uh so even intention setting is something that takes a bit of practice yeah so let's go to uh right after your ayahuasca trip um and then how did that uh, connect with your clinical practice at Thrive? Um, or were there any other um, things that happened in your personal journey um, in terms of building a relationship with, with psychedelics, um, which was a proxy of kind of connecting with your inner child? Was there anything else that kind of happened um, in that process that was, that was noteworthy after this uh, ayahuasca trip? Yeah, like, so just different answers there. I already mentioned how, like, romantic relationships change. Um, in those years after, my relationship with my parents, which is important, shifted in that uh, all that, like, get mad energy was just kind of gone. And I, I started to shift to what an appreciation for 
my mom and dad for their sacrifices for how wonderful they both like actually had done to reduce the level of trauma they'd gone through by like cutting it in half or a third or just like I it was like I was able to just sort of see them as beautiful loving imperfect human beings and I, I just kind of what a relief to just like like I'm so grateful to have like a good relationship with my parents like it just I'm because I'm, you know not everybody ends up there. So, and it was through a lot of work. So that, that was a big shift. Um, and clinically <laughs> I went through a crisis because in, in healing a lot of the kind of childhood stuff, my unconscious reasons for being a therapist were no longer there. I didn't feel like I needed to cure a bunch of people. Um, and I was kind of like, well, what do I do? Like, do I change mm. jobs? But, uh, fortunately, um, I kind of refound religious practice, uh, conscious relationship with psychedelics and the healing started to become more of a receiving and an allowing and sitting with clients and connecting to a process that's just occurring instead of trying to control it and make it happen. And the, the therapeutic work actually became a lot more beautiful at that point. Um, especially working with groups with military veterans, uh, it, it became more of a dance, like of just allowing and just gently nudging a process instead of kind of exhausting myself as much by trying to manufacture something. So uh, a real looseness occurred. And um, finally, you know, I started writing a protocol of how to do integration work and, and consider medicine work and even think about what guiding would look like and, and kind of sitting with people and medicines and spent years and years writing, scrapping, rewriting, consulting uh, other clinicians, talking to people at MAPS, talking to people from the Toronto Psychedelic Society. And it, it just became important to think, what is the role of psychedelics going to be in, in the actual clinical practice? Mm. Uh, but before I ask about the clinical practice too, um, how did your relationship with psychedelics change after that ayahuasca retreat? Were you doing it more regularly or were, did, did mushrooms come back into the play? Because um, I'm also curious about that as well, specifically after that horrifying experience at 15, you did do lower dose mm. mushrooms. Did, did mushrooms yeah. come back into it like four or five grand doses? Did, did MDMA come back or any other experiences or, or any other drugs that you um, built a closer relationship with after your ayahuasca retreat? Yeah, yeah, they, they they did. And and I just started viewing psychedelics almost more like like beings, like people that require a relationship rather than as drugs. And you know, it's reminiscent of the the kind of um kind of ancient Greek practices like where where there there's like the idea of a, a sacrament or 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 just really connecting with like a, an intelligent presence. That shifted. So I I found ceremonies and and I started to attend groups and they're around here if you if you look in the right places to work with um the san pedro cactus um to work with ayahuasca um and then in 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 kind of uh other settings and in, in, in a in a training program um five meo dmt which is, has been one of the most significant medicines uh that's its whole other thing and then you know just in in the wings and in other experiences there were other things that are, are commonly used in the practice like there's one called 2cb which is is a phenethylamine that that's really beneficial to a lot of kind of somatic and body processing uh there were you know and i wouldn't say this is frequent like it makes it sound like i'm doing these every weekend but a, a 
you know, a handful of times a year, there would be quite pointed experiences. Um, actually, I will mention the plant that's been the most transformative and helpful for me is Iboga, which is uh, the mm. national treasure of Gabon, um, you know, beloved plant of mm. the, the Buiti who, who gifted it to a practitioner who I've uh, worked with around here. That that has been a really wonderful plant. Mm. Sorry, Iboga and Ibogaine, they're the same thing? Ibogaine is the primary alkaloid and it's used in a lot of addiction treatment, but Iboga is just like the full root bark, like with all the alkaloids kind of used in more of the religious spiritual tradition rather than just strictly trying to work with addiction. Mm. And those trips from what I've heard last like 24 to 48 hours, is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the primary trip is is a day affair. It's like a good 20 hour trip and uh, actually, you know, on, on my second time sitting with it, it was a good 30 hour trip and it's, oh, wow. yeah, Jesus, it, it is, that long? it's, <laughs> yeah, that, that long. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. It's a very physical medicine. It, it purges traumatic content out of the body. I think largely through how awful physically it feels for a lot of it. Um, the calmness after it is bar none. It's just like, just so calm afterwards. But, uh, it's a long medicine and that one, I'm not the only one to say this, but it, it, it often helps people into the experience of ancestral awareness. Like for me, it showed the behind the scenes of my genetics and my family. And like it, it explained all the traumas of my life weren't isolated mistakes. They were actually all part of like a bigger narrative and they were supposed to happen that way. And it, it just, it made me feel more love and appreciation. Uh, it did a lot of dad related work for me. It really connected me to a deep understanding for my father and his father and um, even mm. his father's father, which is strange because I never physically met him, but I was introduced to a lot of understandings of him because it's all stored mm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you were saying this is the one you benefited from the most. I'm again, has been most beneficial to you. It's the, I, again, terming it like a relationship, it's the one I built the closest, safest, most trusting relationship with. And as a result, because I think, like, I know this for the really um, logical folks out there, this will, might sound a little unusual, but I think it, it like, we shook hands, like it had a, a real trust uh, for me. So it, it just, it, it was willing to just show me such deep secrets of just kind of how everything works and um, you know, it's a medicine not only have I used in the flood context, as they call it in ceremony, but I, I microdosed it while I hiked the West Coast Trail last year. And, and it, um, I just had some incredible experiences in contact with uh, deceased family members and, and just, just out of this world sort of extraordinary experiences. Wow. Wow. And what about mushrooms? I'm curious uh, where they went. Did that person just abandon you or did you abandon them or did the, <laughs> or was there a... Um... Was there any kind of makeup you had with this this mysterious mushroom entity? We 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 had a we had a repair. We we really did. Um, oh, good. Mush okay. Yeah, I know. Because I, I, it's funny how little I'm talking about mushrooms when they're the sort of, uh, you know, they're the hot topic. But no, yeah, we yeah. we we had a repair. I reapproached them with respect. I started taking smaller amounts, working up to larger amounts. Uh, for me personally, I in the work I'm doing, I don't have a need to go past a four gram trip at this point in life. But, um, yeah, I just noticed really the personality of mushrooms, how they interact with me. And no, we, we get along fine now. And, uh, you know, I, I've done like I've sort of reached a point where I've, I've healed the kind of primary um, 
painful schemas. So I'm not like reaching for constant healing like I used to. I'm more just trying to balance my lifestyle. Uh, and uh, ayahuasca just happens to be um, the one I'm closest friends with for, for you know, a, a couple times a year. But mushrooms, <laughs> we get along well. And we have to because, you know, I, I, I in a lot of contexts, I'm, I'm with people while they're on mushrooms. And to have like a really steady even keel i could never sit with somebody with something unless i had that good relationship with it too mm. yeah 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 that's interesting because you when you're with other people and they're doing something you know you want to fully understand what they're experiencing um, yeah, and, yeah. and if they if, if you don't understand that then that can be very difficult for them and for yourself um were there any um powerful mushroom experiences you had in particular anything that comes to mind um af after that uh, ayahuasca retreat you know they're they're it's probably good to talk about these because they're i've talked about such fantastical trips and talking to dead family members and what that mm -hmm. does is it makes the public think well, i'm gonna go talk to dead family members and when that doesn't happen they say well these don't work um <laughs> my, my mushroom experiences have been a lot more like what most people will experience. So um, when I've taken them, like I think of a three and a half gram trip I had with the African Tronske mushroom a couple years ago. Uh, it was just hours of somatic processing. Like it was very mm. uncomfortable. I was tremoring and shaking and it was just reminding me of where I had uh, prioritized like work and career over love and closeness. And I'm mm. sweating and just going, ah, and I'm yawning relentlessly, which is sort of a purgative reset of the autonomic nervous system um i'm again i'm purging through through my my legs going and then my other legs going and i could just feel myself catching up with all these stressful emotions i buried and ignored and that's what a lot of um mm. work with mushrooms is going to look like you the, the heavens don't often part and like you know grandma comes out it's just your your body's intelligence is speaking with you very directly and you're listening. And that, that's been my experience of my mushroom work over the last handful of years. Mm. And I'm curious also, you mentioned how you were at this point where you had uh, healed the primary um, issues that you had. Um, how did you know, like, like what is the difference between, um, what, what is that line between having healed those parts of yourself um, and not like, is, was there a, a big turning point for you? Like afterwards, did you just, mm. was, was life different? Did you look at life different? Were you able to like be more in the present moment and connect with people better, less anxiety, more of a, um, like maybe was there even any association with positive emotion? Were you more joyful, happy, giving, forgiving of people? Um, were there any notable differences in your personality and your um, approach to your work and to relationships in general. Yeah, well, it's exactly like you say, and I already commented on uh, romance, romance and yes. like closeness yeah. with family. But the, the biggest thing I'd say that marks if, if, if healing has happened, and I certainly notice is the amount of getting triggered in, in interactions, like there's something we call shadow work, um, everything you haven't healed from if you've ignored and stuffed away, it goes in the unconscious and what Carl Jung called the shadow. And whenever you encounter things that remind you of your unhealed pain, your heart will start beating. Maybe you'll get angry at it. And most like the norm is people will try to kind of control the world to 
fit around their pain. They may try to steamroll people with their political opinions. They may insist, you need to see the world. I see it or I'm so mad. And the, the, um, my favorite marker of healing is really noticing, oh, I'm, I'm okay to actually let everybody have different opinions, exist in different ways. Uh, they can be themselves. And, and I just noticed for me, the things that used to make me really angry and, and, and feel activated softened. And, and I just started seeing everybody as kind of like bumbling toddlers doing their best and just getting, throwing temper tantrums and, and just it, it getting a lot less sticky. And so the effect is to find the world to be a lot more playful and a lot mm. more like, again, in the kind of Vedic traditions of seeing it a little more like a performance where we mm. take up mm. roles, but ultimately these aren't our roles. And um, one mm. thing I want to note, people think that like effective therapy will eradicate anxiety and often it does, but I, I'm going to tell everybody the bigger pronounced effect is how you relate to anxiety. And while anxiety may still come up, it just doesn't there's not like a second reaction saying, oh, no, I'm getting anxious. You can sort of just dance with the feelings. They're there. It's okay. We don't have to try to fix and cure and change everything. Um, and I've just experienced a lot more looseness in the world. And in there, yeah, there's there's more room for joy. It, it kind of feels like becoming a kid again in some ways. Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, area to focus on of markers of healing because that's – it's very difficult to know, like, like in some way there is no, you know, place that you arrive, right? It's just life is a process. Yeah. But, but, but I think, of course, there are going to be some markers to that. Are there maybe any other um, significant markers maybe that you've seen just, just kind of universally, broadly speaking, from clinical practice as well of like, yeah, this person is now that they can now really experience joy in their life. They can now really be in the present moment and connect with other people. Yeah. Are there any specific markers of uh, healing that you've seen in yourself or with your practice more specifically? Here, here's a big one is how you relate to your own emotions, or we often say the inner child. Uh, almost everybody I've worked with show up with a highly critical relationship to their inner child. There's no room for getting things wrong. They've taken careers that they don't particularly like, but they'll make them feel better about, um, you know, maybe they were bullied. I saw this in myself and definitely in a lot of clients is just starting to be really nice to the emotions, being nice to the inner child, telling uh, him or her, oh, you wanna you want you don't wanna work into the night. You wanna take a day off. Okay, I'll do that for you. Oh, you 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 want me to get a delicious thing for you at the store. You want me to oh, you want me to help you to connect and date with people who treat you well instead of abusive people. When people start to be patient and nice and talk to their inner child with sort of like a, a tearful warmth and say, I'm so sorry I, I abandoned you, that's when people are tend to make great progress in their change. And um, I did a lot of inner child work in my kind of mid to late 20s. And there was just after a long time, it stuck. And I, even though I'm still prone to working too hard and getting cycles of burnout, I don't have that extra mad voice about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a totally messy, flawed human. You're allowed to be too. We all are. So that, that sort of relationship to emotional and, and the inner child is just a major transformative milestone. Mm. And before we get into your clinical practice again, 
um, uh, how did your meditation practice change after these ayahuasca, uh, after the ayahuasca retreat and doing mushrooms again and ibogaine? Did your relationship to meditation change in any significant way? Yeah, well, you know, it's always after after ceremony. Uh, meditation is incredible, <laughs> like just like an effortless presence, and even um, some samadhi states. Uh, which I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, but for the listener, just like yeah. such a, a one pointed dissolution of ego and, and just like such a focused, concentrated state where everything just kind of disappears. It's very yummy. Uh, that That's more apt to happen. But uh, I will say in the, the spirit of just telling people realistically, there hasn't been any massive um, overall transformation. Like I find meditation uh, for me, it, it's it's how deep it is as a, a function of my discipline of how often I'm doing it more than anything. And so after, if I'm not dedicated, uh, you know, a month or two after ceremony, it's just kind of back to monkey mind. It, it, it takes practice and there's no shortcuts when it comes to meditation. Mm. Um, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Cause, um, some people I've heard for them, meditation becomes much more effortless after psychedelic experiences. It's much more easy to do. But in your experience, you're saying that with, without um, discipline, you can kind of just go back to square one very easily. Again, I, I agree with that. Uh, right afterwards, after it's just like effortless. In fact, after Iboga, um, some ceremonies, I'm in meditation for two weeks straight, like not on the cushion, just like a state of just surrender for weeks. Hmm. But it, I'm, I'm just saying like anything psychedelic practice included without a, a sort of discipline to integrate and continue hmm. it. Uh, yep. You will go to work. You will have a coworker. You'll get angry in traffic and things will go back unless you live in a forest or a monastery. Uh, Western society is kind of inherently traumatizing as uh, um, who said that? I think it was uh, Dennis McKenna said that. And I, I like that. Mm. Okay. Okay, so okay, so back to your clinical practice now. Um, so your your relationship to psychedelics has, has evolved. Um, you're you're giving space for your inner child. You're having more uh, forgiveness for your parents. Um, you're understanding different parts of yourself. Um, so how does this translate then to the clinical practice? You said you were building these protocols. Um, at some point, you had kind of a final draft, I assume, of some protocol. Um, and then after that, um, how did you kind of just attract? Uh, people for psychedelic integration therapy well you know my good friend and, and business partner dace was also having um transformative experiences of of his own practice uh i will mention he, he's a he's a deeply uh he, he finds he grounds them in like the traditional religious pathways um so it's I, it, there's an encouragement to just like link psychedelics to to a path um that's a side note we both were having very healing experiences and, and we connected with the intention of we got we got to weave this into we got to weave this into thrive and we also were this was happening kind of before it had hit the the journalism circuit too so we came at a good time um where we started to work with psychedelic integration with clients and toy with the idea of helping to train and shadow other people into the tradition uh, where at one point I had written an article, uh, kind of a review article about psychedelics, their light history, some of their uses, the caution. And I, I published it and it sort of blew up in the SEO world where um, Thrive 
catapulted to the beginning, if you Google Psychedelics Vancouver, to the top, even strangely above maps. And we just sort of took that as, okay, we're, it's time to start really um, having kind of a, a specialty in the psychedelic realm. And we were really shifting our practice to interest in that. And we started meeting with like-minded counselors, um, offering kind of a, a training program for a small group um, and in connection with a particular figure from the Toronto Psychedelic Society, um, who is now on the West Coast with uh, something called Phoenix Academy, an, an incredible training program um, as related to this. So in all these kind of partnerships and programs, Thrive started to offer psychedelic integration therapy. And in doing so, it's really had a transformative effect on the inner part of the, the clinic. Mm. And how did you then end up getting uh, clients um, at your clinic who were seeking psychedelic integration therapy? Was there this big surge all of a sudden or was it gradual um, or, or were you kind of offering this maybe to existing clients? How did you then um, commercialize that and develop a business model for actually um, having clients who are looking for that specific therapy? Well, we, yeah, there was a surge, like an unservable wait list of people. Uh, and then that synced up with when mushrooms hit journal, the, the kind of journalist circles and people really interpreted them as like, well, they cure everything. And, and we actually found ourselves in the opposite of a sales role. Uh, we, we decided to make our stance, if anything, trying to talk people out of it, just because in the seventies with Timothy Leary, there was this adage of uh, just saying, yeah, everybody should do this. And it didn't go so well. So we made our stance to have incredibly thorough intake procedures of helping to assess people if they would be safe or not. And, you know, this is a, a assessment that would just be several hours divided over different sessions of looking at, um, you know, history, medical, biology, uh, traumas, micro traumas, current relationships, supports, experiences of sexuality, identity, gender, everything just to really clarify and help to contribute when aren't psychedelics helpful that's the question we've been more interested in because the last thing the literal last thing on our list we want is people getting hurt uh, both personally or damaging the possibility of what psychedelics uh you know the benefit they can kind of offer to society mm. and and which year are we talking about here when you had the surge of clients Let's see. It uh, it was late 2020 when that started, and then um, you know we we'd rolled it out, and the surge sorry, kind sorry, of. Sorry, sorry. You said late 2020. Yeah, late 2020 was when the article came out, and suddenly we were just getting kind of uh, smoked with with people requesting, and we we also realized at the point we need to connect with practitioners and, and start to shadow them into the tradition, and we really found wonderful, skilled, and and people with their hearts in the right place. So this is still very new then, late 2020. It is. And because, been, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. I'd been sitting with these protocols for, of uh, how to help and, and educate around psychedelics for years. And I'd, I'd met with uh, an unnamed um, director of a, a large psychedelic organization uh, who, who was just sort of saying like, yeah, what are you going to just sit on this for forever? Like when, when, you know, there's, ethical benefit out there. What, what are you waiting for? So yeah, we, we started to move into the sector very intentionally uh, with things we'd, we'd written for a long time. And uh, 
and been, you know, um, piloting sort of in, in different settings. Yeah. So it's just been the last couple of years. And were you seeing, um, was it kind of an experiment at first or were there certain things you learned, certain things that you, um, certain models or ways of approaching this that you kind of figured out later? Um, or were you seeing some progress very quickly from the start? Well, we were standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, there's, there's a, there's such a ethical community, you know, the, the Canadian psychedelic association who actually they, they've just rebranded and I should know what they rebranded as, but, uh, we've, we've had a connection with just a number of really great people. And we, we trained with excellent folks. So it wasn't an experiment. We were able to, between our kind of personal touch and, and, um, everything we've written and what we've been trained in, we had a really strong backbone. And again, what I think we've learned is just such a degree of urging caution to the public. And our, one of our biggest contributions is just, and my personal goal is just to start to send the message of these aren't quick fixes. These aren't something to do because you need to cure your trauma in time for a wedding. Um, they're not very good idea as a sort of like this desperate last resort. I need this. And like, I'm, I'm cornered there. There's our contribution is just educating the public that there's like a patience, a respect, a willingness to look at these as just one step in a bigger path of healing. And that's, that's, I think what we've learned the most. And right now, um, is there a rough percentage you might put on number of clients who are involved with psychedelics anyway? Is it like half of your clients now or is it more like 10% or, or is, or is it, or is it the majority of them? I can say like the larger part of the traffic of people seeking us out, have some request to do with psychedelics, like the majority. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's very interesting. And Currently, have you seen any specific um, kind of waves of interest over the past couple of years, like sort of summertime or like last year or this year? Has there been any um, fluctuation in interest for psychedelic therapy? You know, there's whether it's counseling or psychedelics, there's these bizarre waves through the, the mainland where there's just high demand. And I've tried, I've written them down and tried to predict when they happen over the years, but it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's the predictable ones like around, you know, the holidays, uh, but there's, they just come at times that I, I don't know if it's like public waves of, of mental health stuff, or if it's related to what media is telling, but all I could tell you is they come in waves that are hard to predict. And to kind of circle back to right at the beginning of this conversation, you were saying you're expanding right now. Um, is there anything that you want to kind of update us on with the clinic? What's happening? Are you growing? Are you offering, um, are you having, um, or are you hiring more people, um, who are experienced in the psychedelic space? Um, are you bringing, is there a recent surge of clients that's led to your expansion or are you offering any newer services? Kind of, is there any, uh, progression that's happening right now or anything you want to tell for, um, anybody who's interested, um, for future kind of uh, interactions with Thrive? Yeah, yeah. So we have just increased our capacity. You know, there's a lot of wait lists and counseling for, for a while. And so I've brought 
I've done a, a new wave of hiring so we can offer services without wait lists to people right now and have created another space downtown with a just attention to the decoration and the decor where there we've got like a, a really eccentric uh, desert room, a jungle room, kind of a meditation themed room and just like in large open spaces, especially in the, in the COVID times with such a, like you, there's nobody's seen counseling rooms like these, like just the, the character behind them. Um, Cause we're just thinking from the ground up, like what is the embodied physical experience of being in these spaces? So we've brought on um, the final hiring push for people specialized in psychedelic integration. I'm not interested in expanding the team anymore. I want to keep it intimate so I can track, like we can all track how we're growing and developing together. Uh, but there, at this period, there is still some space to get in there before things move back to a wait list. And, but just beyond the psychedelics, I, I've brought in um, like a natural equity is sort of formed in the team or like there's just such a variety across the team. So just people with sort of just kind of name what, what they're coming with related to issue or identity. We've got a team who can kind of help with something because we're, we're now sitting at uh, 18 practitioners. So uh, yeah, there's just a welcomeness for people to get in touch, have free chats, see if anyone resonates. And, and I would say we're, we're definitely the largest team of psychedelic integration practitioners uh, really kind of in the Western part of North America right now. So just know that we take it seriously to the point of um, con like consultation practice, meeting together, doing our own group medicine work, because I'd say everybody on the team holds it in like a, an incredibly sacred regard. Wow, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so, so happy to hear that. So yeah. congra congratulations to you. I'm really pleased to hear it. Um, and I, I, ho I hope it continues to grow. Um, and uh, I'm also just curious, um, as well, like, what are your duties like now, um, as you've, you're managing the clinic, are you still doing some clinical work? Um, I assume the majority of work you're doing is supervising, mentoring, hiring, interviewing, kind of looking at the macro picture of the clinic. Yeah. Direct directing became really a, a, a full-time gig and just right now with the growth like it's it's you know there's a lot of boots on the ground stuff like i i spent i think like eight hours trying to get a a voip phone to work for a buzzer like there's some things uh <laughs> that are are just really on the ground but i started doing a limited amount of clinical work again recently just because there's just nothing that there's just nothing quite like it and especially now as, as i kind of continue to do my own development um it, like I mentioned before, it feels a lot more like allowing something than actually trying to be a therapist. And so I, I've I've got a small amount of uh, space open for some clinical work and some helping people into their own psychedelic experiences. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. Yeah, and and um, uh, without even without naming anybody or going into any specifics, um, I know we've talked a little bit privately how there's been. Um, maybe a bit of uh, a more international interest, um, maybe people who are not from Vancouver, um, from the United States or other parts of Canada um, who've taken interest in this. Is, has there been any um, significant change with that? Any recent uh, flux of clients who are not from uh, Vancouver but might be from uh, the US who've come to thrive looking for therapy? 
Yeah, yeah, there's there there sure are. And uh, you know, do credit to uh your essay you, you published <laughs> on your Twitter shared by the great Joe Rogan um about you know some of the work we've done. Uh yeah, of course. Um so right now I'm connected with uh an individual in New York, someone in California, mm-hmm. someone in Florida, and someone in Las Vegas. And Oh wow, that many. Okay. I was yeah. one of those. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and and th- there's wow. there there are people really hungry to have safe experiences of this. So I'm always trying to kind of help people is you know are are there people you can connect with locally, but some people are just seeking for safe information, education, counseling, psychedelic integration, and the one of the highest pieces of ethics is like a consideration of client well-being and what's of the greatest good and and when there's a, when people aren't finding something um uh, we're we're offering you know the the availability and the space to help out mm. and also on that note um like with those american people or, or with other people as well like they can still um access counseling and therapy virtually right or or in some cases come over to thrive um um, fly over or, you know, connect in some other way. Um, like, like you don't have to be based in Vancouver to connect with your clinic. Right. Yeah, no, that that's right. And, and the, you know, there's some things that, uh, there's a lot of things that just simply cannot be done via zoom, but there's a lot of things that can be, um, I would say like, uh, quite severe trauma. Uh, most people wouldn't work on it over zoom just cause it's too it's just too hard to regulate and help a client out if they're quite activated, but no, a ton of work can be done uh, from, from distance. And we're really grateful for that. Yeah. Well, listen, Carson, this has been a great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed this. Um, Before, before we close this off though, do you have time for a couple of listener questions? If we have any of them? Yeah. Yeah, of course. That'd be fun. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If there are any listeners, sometimes we have, two or three callers want to ask any questions, um, anything about psychedelic therapy, um, where to get started, um, any spe- spe- specific questions about specific drugs or about uh, connecting with Thrive. If anybody has any questions, um, now is the time to uh, ask. Feel free to do so. All right. Uh, Ubi has a question here. Just inviting him to speak. All right, Abby, what is your question? Did you want to ask something? Okay, go ahead. Hello? Hey. Yeah, hi, Carson. I'm good. How are you, Rav? Good, good, good. Yeah, let's hear your uh, my question. Qu- yeah, my question was um, to Carson. Does he expect... Uh, I don't know if he knows if anything like this would be available in Australia and if he expects anything like this to become available. All right, Carson. Um, just invited you to speak here. You should be able to talk. Not sure what's going on here. Okay, there you go. That should work. 
just yeah. Okay. Carson, welcome back. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Okay. I said I asked that so many times. I don't know if people heard me every time. But uh, no, to this no, to this question. They didn't, they didn't hear you. You're fine. Yeah. It's a great question. And, I, I, you know, I don't know a lot about legislation um, in, in Australia. Because often that question means, will there be psychedelic psychotherapy in the legal uh, kind of sector? And I would hazard, I, I, from my understanding, um Australia is, I think, a little bit behind Canada in terms of where we're at. I could be wrong. So what I would say is if, if, if you're kind of waiting for open clinics to offer psychedelic psychotherapy, it's probably going to be quite some time. However, what I want to encourage is there are ceremonies and there's, there's private guides who have lifetimes of experience in every country, in every continent. They're just working in an underground sector. Uh, we have to remember these plants have been in practice for thousands of years. So there's really competent people doing great work. Uh, the only tricky part is just kind of they're, they're often hard to find. So if you were curious about this, it, you'd, you'd, have to, you'd have to start digging and, and see if there's any events uh, even related to psychedelics to attend, have a few conversations. And I'm confident you would find somebody somewhere doing the kind of work, but that's kind of the best answer I can give. Mm. Perfect. Anybody else have a question? Um, anything about psychedelic therapy? Anybody who's interested in doing this work themselves? Or if they know anybody else who's interested? Um, or anybody who's had an experience who wants to share? Feel free to do so. Otherwise, we'll uh, wrap up the call. Um, okay. Looks like we don't have any questions. Um, Carson, it was great to have you here. Hey, yeah, that was a lot of fun, Rav. Always, always great to chat. And yeah, let's look to let's look to catch up again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, and we'll definitely have you on in the future to talk about specific um, clinical experiences, so some success stories. Um, I think those are always very, very interesting and very powerful to give actual examples. Um, I think. Uh, That'd be great for my listeners and uh, readers to uh, tune into. So uh, we'll definitely look forward to have you on maybe uh, sometime again this month. Okay. You, I look forward to it. Great. And lastly, okay. if people if people want to reach out to Thrive, they can do that on the website? Yeah. If the link is there, go for it. You can reach out on the website. You can reach out, connect at thrivedowntown.com. Feel free to get in touch. There's lots of us happy to have free chats and, and provide more information. Great. Yeah, I've linked to Thrive Downtown in the uh, description of this podcast episode, wherever you're listening from Spotify or Apple, you can access that. And I've linked Carson to your Substack as well, where um, if you, I don't know if you want to briefly go into that. Um, are you going to be writing anything um, coming up or are you going to, is there going to be any regular uh, schedule for, for writing pieces on psychedelic therapy? Yeah, I got to address, address that elephant in the room. Uh, with, with this expansion, I, I've been just so hijacked. I, I've had to pause a lot of my, my kind of creative initiatives. Um, once we're done this, I'll, I'll be contributing regularly to my Substack. But uh, it's I'm just I'm I'm just a bit paused right now. Um, but when when I do rejoin, things will be in the theme of psychedelics. Of uh, there, there's kind of a master thread I have intended with my writing, and I will return to that. Sounds good. That's great. And people can go subscribe to that right now 
uh, in the link in the description and they can get your future essays straight to their inbox uh, for free. Very good. That's great. All right, Carson, have a good day. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, that was, that was great. You, you take care, Rob. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you everybody.